Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. On June 3rd, Film Out, San Diego's LGBT film festival, kicks off its 18th year and will showcase some 40 films in three days. One film that stood out for me was Down River. It reminded me of a film that screened at last year's Film Out called Drown. Both films are from Australia, and both serve up dark tales intensified by an undercurrent of homophobia. Michael McQuiggan programmed both of these films. Down River is... It's a beautiful film. Um, You know, I don't know what's going on. Australia in the last few years has exploded in LGBT cinema. I mean, all of the films that we receive from Australia are outstanding. I mean, the performances in this film by Reef Ireland and Kerry Fox are outstanding. Um, The cinematography is beautiful. And, you know, and it's a it's a it's a mystery. I mean, you you rarely you rarely see an LGBT film that is has as much depth as Down River or say last like we screened last year at Drown. Of all the films that are playing at the festival this year, I think the a few of them that 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 could cross over into the mainstream could be Down River, and of course it could be Closet Monster, which is another film that kind of has a kind of a darker edge to it. That's um, from Canada. And so, um, and they both have young protagonists. So it can be related to a lot of the um, LGBT youth that don't think there are films out there for them that have characters that are that are them. I mean, they're relatable films. You can check out my review of Drown from last year. Look for podcast number eighteen, and then check the film out. This year, I had the opportunity to interview the director of Downriver, Grant Shakluna. The film opens with James, played by Reef Ireland, being released from juvenile detention for his role in the murder of a young boy. When I left, he was in the water. Did you push him out? No. How deep was he? Over his head? Not real deep. We've had divers search right up and down there. It's not far from the sea there. But you didn't push him out. I never lied. So this doctor saying your epilepsy's made you forget things is not true, is it? Did you weigh him down? Or did you take him to the bushes? It wasn't just me there. But I don't have him, do I? So you wouldn't you wouldn't forget pushing him out? The police should have found him. They didn't need to. They had you. I spoke with Grant by phone earlier this week. He was in Australia. His film screens Sunday, June 5th at the Observatory North Park, and then will hopefully find wider distribution theatrically or VOD. So here's my interview with Grant Shakluna. Grant, I wanted to find out, first of all, how did you decide on this particular story? Because this is your first feature film, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah, look, the inspiration for it, um, as ideas often get generated for me, uh, out of conversations. And so I remember, you know, a long time ago, because I started writing this almost 10 years ago, and I was talking with a friend, and there were numerous cases of children who had committed murders, sometimes other children, sometimes their parents, sometimes their friends. You know, it's, it's an alarmingly a common scenario. And, you know, we just started talking about this idea around nature 
birth nurture and whether these children were inherently evil or whether something in their background or whether they were trapped and, and felt like that was the only possible way out in a child's mind. And so I just started writing the script from all of those all of those questions and, you know, that's where I like to to write from is just trying to discover how I feel about something and then um, I guess use use a screenplay or a film to make a point or prove a premise as to how I see a particular topic. So you've been carrying this fairly dark story around with you for 10 years? (laughs) Yes. I'm not afraid of darkness. People sort of who know me in real life, they're like, "Mm, why do you write such dark stuff? Because you're actually such a well-adjusted, happy person. I'm like, hmm, if you knew me on the inside. I feel like you know, with darkness is always the the equal and the opposite, which is something um, about life. And so, you know, for me, uh, very much as I was working on this script, which is about, well, it's about death and grief, but at the same time, it's about the characters left behind who are trying to live and they're trying to make connections. And so I can, I can not just you know, wholeheartedly go into a dark story and just tell dark truths, you know, at the same time, you have to look at what what is also the opposite to that, which is, for me, in this story about friendship and parenting and love in various forms and forgiveness and all of those things, which I guess you would say are much um, uh, lighter or happier. And that, I think, kept me me, uh, going as I was sort of confronting some of the, the tougher aspects of the story, that's for sure. As somebody who watches a lot of films, I really appreciate people who can embrace the darkness a bit because we get spoon-fed a lot of very kind of saccharine <laughs> stories that seem to be afraid to go anyplace dark. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a bit adverse to watching those films too. <laughs> so what in particular about these kind of characters that had initially intrigued you, this, this sense that there were young people involved in in murders, what about that intrigued you enough to want to tell a story? And what were you hoping to kind of hit thematically by focusing on that aspect? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a, there's a lot of elements to that question. And for me, I think what I was searching for in the beginning is I was quite prepared to tell, a, you know, inverted commas, a dark hero story. And so you know, in a way, I, I didn't know what a challenge I was setting myself by by telling a story from the point of view of this character and a character who, when he was 10, committed murder. You know, usually protagonists in films are, you know, sympathetic or have some kind of, you know, redeeming qualities or, or things like that. And so I kind of wanted to break that rule. And so I wanted to find a story which was about sort of the worst possible place to begin a character. And the mission I set for myself is to try and understand that person and hopefully bring the audience along on, on, on walking the journey with that person so that by the end of the film, you know, my, my point which I'm trying to make is that you can't define a person by their actions when they're a child. I mean, I would, I just, if somebody said, oh, well, I understand the kind of person that you are because of what you did when you were nine or 10, as extreme as it is, uh, I just don't, don't believe that you, you are who you are. And I also think that, you know, as you go through life, you're constantly changing 
and the person I am now in my 30s is completely different to the person in my 20s. And that's the, that's the point of life. That's the point of existence. And so I guess that, that possibility of, of really asking that question of can you really condemn this character for what he did at the age of 10, especially when now he is trying so hard to atone for those confused confused few moments where he made the worst possible decision at the age of 10. And so it was just fascinating to me. It was a really fascinating territory and an interesting place to, to start a story and a big challenge, as I said, because I was always aware of how the audience would feel, should feel, and my, my mission in kind of taking their hand and walking with them through the story. You also choose a rather complex narrative structure in the sense that you do a lot of inner cutting between action and kind of giving you two parallel storylines, or not complete storylines, but, you know, two parallel things going on that you're cutting back and forth between. What made you want to structure it like that? Because I really enjoy that. I like being challenged as a viewer. Like I said, I don't like having stuff just spoon-fed to me, and it's it makes you pay attention and it engages you more, and I just really appreciated the way you structured it. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that because, um, yeah, we were sort of put ourselves out out on a limb with that technique that you're talking about. It was not planned. The, the script wasn't scripted in that way. It was uh, something which we discovered in the editing room. You know, it's very often that a scene will, you know, in coming to a close, you'll you'll precede the cut into the next scene with some lines of dialogue from the incoming scene. And so that's just normal and accepted kind of film language. But we just started to push that further and further and further in the edit to this point where it was a kind of destabilizing effect. And I really, really liked what it did because suddenly a scene would end visually, but but we allowed dialogue from the previous scene to continue sailing into the next scene. And so what happens is that uh, you have this kind of destabilizing moment where you're, you're not sure whether what you've seen is past, present, you know, whether you're going back in time now. So there's a moment of, of kind of, uh, as you say, where you have to sit up again and, and, and really start thinking about it and paying attention. And then I also loved the haunting effects that it, it had by having disembodied voices continuing over uh, vision from other moments uh, just instantly creates a ghostly effect. And so all of that stuff just, for me, fed into um, aspects of tone. And then it builds and builds and, and as an effect until it reaches a real crescendo and, and, and a moment where unless you're sitting up in your chair and really listening and watching and your ear is doing one thing and your eye is doing another, you will miss it. You will miss what happens. And and so I wanted to, yeah, kind of pay pay respect to the intelligence of the audience that I knew that you could you could stick with it and I knew that had you stuck with it, uh you would you would be feeling satisfied. Um because it's unconventional in, in that regard. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I can't think of any other film. We we were not necessarily inspired by any other film in that 
technique. But yeah, I mean, people are really responding to it and, and, and saying it's a really memorable aspect of the film. Well, and I think that technique really plays into the mood that you're trying to create, because you mentioned that the word destabilizing. And I think you go into this kind of without any bearings because you're you're not quite sure you sense that there's something he's not quite telling you or that he's not revealing fully so you you feel like you don't have all the details yet and so you're kind of hanging on everybody's word trying to figure out like okay who's telling the truth who's hiding something where am I going to get like the rest of that information I need and so from the beginning you 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 know that you have to this is a film that you have to uh, pay attention to it's not uh, one of those films you mentioned before where you're going to be spoon-fed and so um, in in accepting that that challenge then um, you know I guess the 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 techniques of the film um, uh, pay respect to that as well in uh, in the structure of the film as well as the content one thing that I think films underuse a lot is sound but you use sound in a really effective way there was especially uh, one sequence where you hear this noise and you're not sure where it's coming from you hear sound sometimes that doesn't seem specifically rooted in the scene you're watching and you feel mm. it's it, it has some memory quality to it can you talk a little bit about how you wanted to use sound and music to help create the mood yeah, sound sound design is is possibly one of my favourite aspects of of filmmaking. It's really an underutilised and very creative part of, of of filmmaking. And and I think that the idea that we were just talking about then of, of um, you know that we discovered in the edit really inspired our sound designer, so that she felt free to use that same idea of divorcing sounds from their visual and using it in an emotional way. And so just in that same same way of leading into new scenes, she would bring sounds in from scenes that were coming up in five minutes' time, and you just feel these sounds. And, and I guess even you're not even aware that you've been feeling these sounds or hearing these sounds until suddenly uh, you're led into to this next scene. And so I just encourage her to keep, exploring that idea and always go from an emotional place and never try to be heavy-handed with it so that you know it wasn't it wasn't trying to be clever but but rather it was um, trying to evoke new emotion or in some in sometimes deliver you like score deliver you into a new tone or deliver you into a new place in the story because the, sc- the score in the film is very sparse and there's only three moments of music and they're used only in the final half. And so the other moments, which are kind of score-like, uh, are all sound design and they're, and, they're, and they're taking sounds of cars going over bridges that she's, she's manipulated into almost like a heartbeat, a rhythmic sort of heartbeat sound. but you don't recognize it as either. <laughs> and so it's a very, it's score-like rather than sound design. But I'm really proud of the, of the sound. I'm really proud of the extremes that Emma pushed herself to. She's a very experienced sound designer, but she put herself out on a limb doing the sound design for our film because there was no hiding behind score. And also, if you recall in the film, as well as 
the moments of, of real sort of prominent sound design is also an extremely quiet film at times. And so there's some, some moments of, of real silence. And again, for a sound designer, that's really terrifying because they can't hide behind anything so that the deliberate choices of which sounds are in the scene really calling attention to themselves. And so, yeah, I'm really happy. I'm really, really pleased that people are, are, are noticing the sound in retrospect. I think it's not um, it's not done heavy-handed. It's just like, oh, wow, yeah, I do actually recall those moments uh, because of how the sound made you feel. It was very effective. Cool. The subject matter, there's a lot of really difficult material in this in terms of subject and emotions. How did you work with these young actors to get these performances out of them? Because they're all very good. The, the, the young actors are all differing levels of experience as, as actors and also differing walks of life. The, the thing that's common between them all is that they're all really emotionally mature young men. And so I set out from the beginning, even from the very first time I met them in the casting room, just to be completely honest about um, all aspects of the film and all aspects of their characters and just trying to create an atmosphere where they could talk, ask questions, and I would answer all the questions honestly, whether it was about aspects of sexuality or identity or the violence in the film or, you know, anything that that they were thinking about. And so they were very conversant and, and also with each other, so supportive to each other through the making of the film, even though... You know, as the film goes on, friendships fall apart and, you know, there's violence involved, but they were like the tightest knit little trio. And, and I think that's because they, they genuinely care for each other through the, through the making of the film. I think the, the trick with, with actors of any age and, and I think especially with, you know, younger actors is you need to really identify what it is they need and I, and I think you can't play games with them. You, you, you just have to be really, really honest. And, and so one of them really wanted to talk a lot and had so many questions uh, about his character and where he's coming from. And some of the others wanted to talk in rehearsal, but then when it got to the day and the shoot, you know, then the conversation was over. Then it was more about just feeling the, the scene and, and less, less talking, but I think that my role as a director is to recognise which kind of actor they are and there's a whole spectrum of, of performers and and just be that mirror person for them and just to be able to give them everything they need in every moment of, of making the film. So, yeah, it was tough at times. There's some really confronting scenes, but, um, you know, I think if you met those those young guys or if I see them on the street around Melbourne, they run across the street to find me and hug me and, you know, we, we, we got through it and we're kind of bonded, you know, substitute family for each other. And you had worked with Reef Ireland before and you mentioned that you're starting this film at a difficult point in terms of the audience identifying with his character of James, but he has such a... I don't know how to describe it, but it's such a like troubled and contemplative face that you you feel a sympathy for him, even though what's going on in the scene is telling you that maybe you shouldn't. And so I'm just wondering what you saw in him in particular that made you want to cast him for this. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 
it's that quality that you just put your finger on in Reef that is um, a really wonderful duality to him. His his face itself, you know, even when he appears not to be doing anything, is telling a story. And and he's a he's a really kind person in life, and so I think that that cannot help but seep out, especially if he allows himself, which he does. Um, and I try to encourage when when I've worked with him on short films or on this, is to show that that kindness and show that vulnerability. But at the same time, you know, he's he's a boy that's seen some tough stuff. He's uh, he grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne where it's tougher, and so he's got a wealth of experience to draw upon. And so when I was making the short film, the first short film I made was in The Wilding, I just saw this, this wonderful duality to him, um, which was kind of on, on, one, on one time kind of like a caged animal, you know, even brutal, and then, you know, flipped the coin, and he was the most gentle, loving um, human being. And so that just me so suited this character and I knew I mean when everybody else was worried about the the sympathy aspect of telling the story from the point of view of, of the murderer I knew that if you put Reef Island in that role and with that face you know the audience is going to be prepared to start walking with him and and that's not to say they will always want to walk with him especially with the revelations that come but just just that first scene and 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 allowing the audience to start a journey with him is so important and I, and I think it's all down to all down to him and just who he is as a person and he's prepared to not close that off to the camera. What role did you want nature to play in the film because that adds another layer of at times tension to the story. Yeah, well I grew up I grew up in the Australian bush and so and also as a very imaginative child I was always daydreaming and so yeah, I mean the the nature for me and and the bush and the rural landscape is um you know easily sort of personified and certainly adds a um a sense of tone and and so and also I grew up around rivers and I grew up around rivers where bad things happened and we were always told, you know, don't go swimming in the river. It was dangerous. And so instantly you start imbuing nature with these um, bad feelings. And so I, I think I've always carried that. And, um, you know, as Australians, we've got, we've got a real relationship with, with the bush. And so I had to uh, be true to that as I was writing the film, but also shooting it and so we shot a whole heap of material which is you know of of nature and the shots themselves uh in isolation are kind of beautiful but by nature of filmmaking as soon as you place a shot alongside another scene um or insert it in a particular point in the narrative part of what you do as the audience is bring your own uh feeling onto that shot and then imbue the, the the vision with your own feelings and so, yeah, I, it's very important to me to to ground a story in a world, and especially with the river, the shots of the river, you know, I think have a really haunting effect on people because there's this sort of sense of the river always travelling. It's just always moving through, even when the characters themselves are stuck. 
and also this ghostly feeling that the child's body, which is still missing, is somehow in that water is uh, a kind of poisonous sensation of, 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 of the life-giving aspect of water is suddenly poisoned by this, um, this event. There was one scene in particular where uh, there's a mother scolding her child and the Carrie Fox character has sympathy for her where her the character of her boyfriend doesn't. And it was a great scene because it, it reminded you that there was this nature there that was dangerous, but then it gave you kind of this dual perspective on what we were witnessing from this one particular parent. Don't go in there. I told Ow. you no. Listen to me. Get in the car. Boy's gonna grow up terrified, eh? You have to walk in someone else's shoes for a bit. A boy drowned here. That's what that was about. That's why she hit him, because down there's where that boy went missing. I didn't know that. So she's scared, so that's on her mind. You know, so much with Carrie Fox's character is tied up in her questioning her failure as a mother. And so when she when she witnesses that and and the and the other mother in question is telling her son, Don't go down there and Carrie knows exactly Carrie's character Paige knows exactly what that what that is about because down there is where the child went missing and she reads that and and her boyfriend who doesn't doesn't know the full extent of the situation, if, if much at all by that point, just reads it as a mother being uncaring and um, being too vicious for the, to a child. And so there is that, that duality of, of, of seeing, a, seeing a situation from two points of view. And you start to really identify with, with Carrie Fox's character at that point and the pain uh, that she is carrying with her and has carried with her um, right through right through her mothering life, you know, two, two-thirds of her mothering life. The boyfriend was an interesting character, too, because he has a surprising scene towards the end that I did not expect from him at all when he, he kind of leaves and, and tells uh, James a few things about having been to prison, about, you know, what, what happens to people who have been to prison. I killed someone. She's just used to lying about it. <laughs> it's not your fault, mate. Sorry to leave you stranded. I'm not stranded. My brother went to prison, mate. Well, I'd pretend to know what it's like, but... Um, he used to say people think you go in, you get punished, you come out. That's not the real punishment. It comes after. You have to convince yourself and everyone else that you're still worth something. Don't you let any bastard tell you that you don't deserve anything. You know, I, I, what I was trying to, to, to do in that scene is, is suggest the, the ongoing pain that, that, that Reese character and the, and the pain it can inflict upon his family and that it will continue to inflict. And so you have this great guy who 
would ostensibly be a great new fatherly figure to James. And because of the circumstances and, and mainly because of how um, James's mother uh, is unable to, to, to reconcile, she's just so wounded, he, he has no option but to leave. And so the sadness um, to see him walk away, uh, I, I think is really profound because he, he, he proves despite what you're expecting, which is as soon as he discovers that James is who he is, that he's going to have a negative reaction, he actually shows a vulnerable side to him, which is, I understand you because of my own family history. And so um, I guess he's, he's embodying uh, some of the themes of the film, which is about seeing past the action and trying to see to the person. And so that was a really... It was a really important moment for everyone who was working on the film. And, and many people have really highlighted that moment as being, that's what the film is about. And I think to a degree it really is, because that's thematically what I'm trying to say with the film. Well, and the compassion that he reveals is very different from what some of the other older male characters reveal from another family. Film Out recently screened the film Drown, which was also Australian and also quite dark. And both your film and Drown reveal this kind of very um, ugly kind of homophobia that exists. Is, is that coincidental that both those films have dealt with that topic within like the past couple of years? Or is that something reflective of, you know, something going on? In, in terms of what films are looking to right now in Australian culture? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And I do think about this in quite a bit, having seen a number of Australian films that are um, still on the topic of, of homophobia. You know, it's a really interesting country because for a long time we've been seen as being very progressive. You know, our Mardi Gras gay pride march has been one of the most famous gay pride marches for 20 years. But it's same time this the, the debate about marriage equality is is it feels like it should have come in uh, and been more important in Australia years and years and years ago and yet it's it's hardly on the political agenda and it's very important to a lot of people but it also seems to be a divisive issue and um, and so that speaks to an aspect of Australian culture that is still very is still coming to terms with otherness, and I think that's a great, great aspect of 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 our identity that that we need to uh, interrogate. And that's not just to do with gay people; it's about welcoming refugees. It's about um, multiculturalism. You know, we we uh, because of our geography, I guess, uh, don't rub up against uh, people who are different to us enough. And so uh, we still have, in, in part of our, our culture, a sense of fear of the other. And I think um, the films that you're talking about uh, are, still, are still relevant in Australia because we still need to really do some work in, 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 that, in that field. And why do you feel it's important for your film to play at an LGBT festival? Is that an important thing for you? Uh, it is. Um, you know, people people say to me all the time, are you a gay filmmaker? Are you a filmmaker? You know, how do you identify? And I'm like, well, I am a filmmaker. I'm also gay. I love to see all kinds of cinema, but I especially love to, to go to 
queer film festivals. It's my favourite film festival here in Melbourne is the is our GLBT festival. And so for me to have Down River uh, embraced and played to queer audiences feels to me like a you know a reaching out a sense of community that I've always had with GLBT people around the world by by extension of seeing each other's films and sometimes travelling to the festivals and meeting audiences and so. It's very important to me to have to have our film embraced in that way. But at the same time, I think you know when when you know even looking at the conversation that you and I have been having now, we until that last question have not really talked about sexuality or sexual identity or anything like that because I don't think that my film necessarily has that as its primary concern. And so at the same time. You know, if you actually start to break down the sexualities of the characters, there's a lot of queerness in inverted commas um, going on there, whether it's kind of bisexuality, homosexuality, other kind of forms of sexuality. It's, it's, it's all there. But the, the primary concern is more about uh, redemption and uh, forgiveness and family and, and things like that. It just so happens that the characters uh, are gay. Some of the good characters are gay. Some of the bad characters are gay. Um, and so that was very important to me, and I had to really cling on to that because a lot of people said, well, why do the characters have to be gay in your story? Um, as if to say that uh, the audience would be bigger or um, the story would be more palatable if, you know, some of the young gay young men were actually young straight women. <laughs> um, and so I had these conversations in development, but for me I was like, no, this is... This is the world that I see as a gay person. You know, I see gay people all around me. There's there's real visibility of gay people, and some of them are good and some of them are not. But it was very important to me to have my film populated by a number of sexualities. And so um, it's great then that the film, despite it not being, you know, an, an obvious kind of queer film or GLBT film, um, that the the GLBT festivals are embracing it um, and playing it just feels like a natural, natural fit. Well, yeah, I mean, your film really is first and foremost about things like guilt and loss and redemption. I mean, that's primarily, you know, kind of the themes that you're tackling. Yeah, that's right. And um, which is not to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in films which are um, about a gay identity or... or um, uh, struggling with sexuality or homophobia or anything like that. I think those films and those issues are still absolutely relevant to a lot of people um, all around the world. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's really exciting to to make films which are about other things, but to populate them with queer characters. I think that's really an exciting place to be as a filmmaker and for the audience. I think it makes it a more interesting film if you put those issues of things like guilt and loss and redemption in the forefront and then the other issues all come up because of looking at those things. Yeah, that's right. Just sort of bleeding bleeding through um, through the narratives. Yeah, I think that's important. And do you feel that having your film play at a LGBT festival, does that eventually help your film get to a wider audience or to wider distribution? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, we we do have distribution in the U.S. 
Um, and it's very important to that uh, distribution company to have the film play at film festivals and have, have a run at film festivals so that it can find um, it can find an initial audience and, and build that word of mouth, but also have a, a kind of critical response, you know, grow a sense of awareness around the film so that it doesn't just drop out of nowhere and therefore not get seen. So, um, yeah, the film festivals that we've played in, it's just beginning in the US, but um, already, like, it's just been... It's been incredibly helpful for our distributor in planning the the release of the film, which is for the second half of of this year. So yeah, it's and for me, um, you know, having audiences all around the world discover the film, and I love reading when people write about the film on blogs, or people tweet about it, or tweet me, uh, or try and tweet the cast. Um, you know, I you know, I just I love that that sense of the film finding finding its audience and, um, and hopefully uh, moving its audience. You made a lot of short films before uh, Downriver. Did you feel that the process of making those short films prepared you for making this feature? Yeah, absolutely, because as I sort of hinted at in the start of this conversation, I trained as a writer, and so I was working on the feature script throughout that process of, of trying to learn what how you write a script. But I didn't train as a director. And so um, all the all the training I, I got was on set through through short films, all the mistakes, and I made a lot of them. But also just really trying to get a handle on what it is a director does, how a director should behave, how a director should communicate with crew, with actors. Also, it's incredibly complicated um, especially for someone like me who's quite introverted and very, very shy, and so I don't naturally sort of suit the precarious image of, of what a director does or, or how they behave. And so working on shorts really built up that confidence for me um, and, and enabled me to really break down the, the job into its parts and, and, and find what I was good at and what I was strong at and and I think that that's working working with actors um, and uh, and I think that uh, to a lesser degree I'm I'm not as strong as a visual storyteller uh, as I am in in being able to communicate with with actors and so what that meant for me was I put next to me a very very experienced uh, director of photography or, or, or camera person and so that they hold, they build me up in that sense and, and they take that responsibility and we, I can lean on them in that sense to, to pick up that weaker aspect of, of, of what I'm still discovering and still learning. And I think shorts, you know, if you're properly using the short form as a, as a development tool, you know, they are. It's it's an invar- invaluable way of really trying to work out what it is you're good at, what it is you can be better at, uh, make the mistakes, and and learn the lessons. Now that the film is done and has been screening at festivals and elsewhere, what do you feel most proud of about it? Yeah, it's um, I'm really proud that it is the film that we set out to make because, you know, oftentimes these directors are really honest with you. <laughs> They'll say, oh, you know, especially in a low-budget realm, which we are in, 
Um, there's so many compromises along the way. And um, and we stuck to our guns. And I've got this this sort of fatal attitude, fatalistic attitude towards filmmaking, which is, you know, you have to make the film exactly as it should be, um, or else you'll regret it. And and you, you and at at some point, the film that you are about to make will be the final film that you get to make. And so you have to really um, honor that. And so I often said to my producer, this may be our one and only shot at making a feature film. So, and she agreed completely. And so she, she and I were just like, it has to be as we want it. Otherwise we will regret it and, and, and not feel proud of it. And so when I look at it, uh, I see despite all the challenges and the lack of resources and um, you know, the time constraints and all those sort of things that, that are inherent to, to low-budget filmmaking, I'm like, it is the film that I foresaw. So I, I'm really pleased about that, and I think that that's a credit to all the crew and, and the actors that um, they saw the same film in the script and so were able to help me get to that end result. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with me today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for the very insightful question. That was director Grant Shakluna, whose film Downriver will play at Film Out in San Diego on June 5th. But get there early, because there will be street closures for the Rock and Roll Marathon. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and check out the online archives at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. Next week, I'll speak with first-time filmmaker Bettina Noeno about her look at Kenya's music, politics, and railways. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.